welcome to the latest edition of the Asher's Business Agenda podcast. I'm Anna-Marie Slot, Global Sustainability and ESG Partner here at Asher's. And this is the first in a new series we're launching based out of our partnership with McKinsey & Company in their Global Infrastructure Initiative. The GII Summit took place in Tokyo in October 2022 with senior stakeholders from around the globe meeting to discuss creating the pathway to sustainable infrastructure. I'm delighted to be joined today by Kevin Cloudin, who is the Chief Global Strategist at the Milken Institute. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? I'm more than happy to do so. And Anne-Marie, it's wonderful to see you again virtually and to talk with you. And uh, for everyone here, just to let you know, my name is, as noted, Kevin Cloudon. And I have been with the Milken Institute, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit economic think tank uh, based in Los Angeles, but with offices uh, around the world, including in Washington, D.C., New York and Miami, but also London, Abu Dhabi and Singapore. And I have been with the Institute for well more than a decade and have served in a number of roles, including as uh, the executive director for Center for Regional Economics. And one of my chief areas has always been uh, economic development, sustainable economic development, not just in the United States, but in different regions around the world. And before I worked for the Moken Institute, uh, a number of years ago, I was actually a professor of geography at Santa Monica College in Los Angeles, where I used to teach classes on physical and cultural geography. Fascinating background, Kevin. So, you know, as as um, you and I met uh, at the McKinsey Global Infrastructure Initiative uh, Conference this year in, in Japan, where the theme was around creating a pathway to sustainable infrastructure, um, really interesting group of people. Obviously, uh, I thought so, since uh, we, we've asked you here onto the podcast. <laughs> um what what were your key takeaways? I think there were a lot of things talked about there um, at that conference, but key takeaways from your side. Well, the biggest takeaway I really had is that there are different gaps in different parts of the world in terms of needing to get to the levels and objective sustainability, both that we see coming out of the world, the UN and various others, the larger countries, and then the smaller countries. And how do you execute? And one of the things that came up a great deal is getting to that path of being able to actually not only fund projects, have the money, but to have the resources, to have the uh, execution plans, and to have the people to actually execute and build that infrastructure. And in fact, one of the reasons I was there and I was speaking on was it was on the people side, talking about the fundamental gaps in having skilled individuals in different parts of the world, particularly uh, the developing world where they haven't had the history of investing in infrastructure projects to the same degree and having the local skilled workforce to be able to complete them. Yeah, it's always it always comes down to execution, right? We you know you start with these big fantastic um, plans, but at the end of the day, it's it's really all about um, execution. Which interestingly enough brings brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk with you about. So I I went from from that conference um, back uh, back to Egypt and over to COP twenty seven, um, which was a fascinating um, COP, obviously. Build as the Africa COP, but also as the implementation COP. And so 
this was the you know the opportunity to take what people have been talking about and actually put it into action. So my takeaways there, there from COP were you know a lot of conversation about loss and damage, a lot of conversations about blended finance. To your point, you know how do you actually get the money to where it needs to be, and how do you get those projects moving? Um, fair bit about innovation, what's already been done, but also how do you scale that? How do you roll that out? Um, and then obviously the relationship between the global north and the global south, and that difference that you you were just mentioning in the conference it's at McKinsey came out as well in COP. Um, you know, looking at it, what what do you think about what came out of that collection of of humans? I think what came out was that the very optimistic, buoyant feelings of COP twenty six, uh, which were very much broad statements, following up on sort of the the mentality and and, and feelings of the Paris Accord, uh, hit the execution problems. And you, you talk about the issue of the North South. Uh, divide. I think that that's incredibly important. I think that was really uh, at play at COP27. I think that it was uh, the, the biggest single agreement out of it was, in fact, based around funding from North, essentially funding the South. And that's a huge part of the reality is that we have a legacy situation where the, you know, the great industrial powers and that means not only you know the historic, shall we say, contributors to to uh, global warming and climate change, the U.S. and Western Central Europe, uh, but also obviously Russia, you know, China, uh, you know, who's doing it now, India, who is an increasing contributor, and so on, and contrasting that with where the impacts are greatest. I mean, the irony for it is that India very clearly, and uh, along with Pakistan and Bangladesh, are going to be feeling it very strongly. But well, impacts in Africa, impacts in the Mideast, impacts in Southeast Asia, in the Pacific, impacts in Latin America, they're everywhere. And being able to actually address not just the obvious issue of controlling emissions and figuring out how to do that on the creation side, essentially the side where we manufacture most everything, we design new vehicles, we look for sustainable solutions. But in the huge chunk of the world where they're being affected now, and how do you deal with the effects that are happening, but also how do you make it economically viable for them to implement solutions? And it's interesting and interesting talking about that is that I wasn't actually at COP. I was nearby in Abu Dhabi because of the fact that we were doing, uh, the Milken Institute was hosting our Mideast and North Africa Summit, which included some people who went to COP27 for a few days in Sharm el-Sheikh and then did the short trip over to Abu Dhabi. But my main focus while I was there, the, what I talked on and engaged with people on was on sustainable cities. And in fact, the big theme that kept coming up on that was how do we afford it and how do we find a way to execute it? Even in the developed world, where you know you, you look at the impact of the pandemic, we you know we made a whole big story about emissions were down in 2020. That there is this massive drop and how lovely it was. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, and you know that didn't last. In part, it didn't last because we all wanted our stuff that we put that we put aside and during the pandemic and the manufacturing manufacturing everything and transporting all these goods as we caught up is to put everything back out there. But the other thing that's really significantly came when we talked about sustainable cities is that 
there is a real negative impact in people going from locations that were essentially, in theory, more sustainable with mass transit, with concentration of resources and people and being able to find solutions there to the fact that they've moved out, that, you know, you've had a, a flight from these centers, that you've had how, and this, this, the, the lack of numbers that makes mass transit sustainable and fundable, the lack of, you know, the lack of travelers and people who are going on trains, who are going on various, you know, more effective mass solutions. So the question is, in looking at these sustainable options and these, you know, how do you attract people back into these sustainable locations in the future? And how do you pay for them? And urbanization and these challenges of sustainable cities is something that's everywhere. I mean, you look at where, you know, the large, some of the largest metropolises of the 21st century are, whether it's Jakarta, who's actively sinking into the ocean. Uh, Lagos, Nigeria, who also is a, has a real threat in that regard. Uh, some of the major cities in the world, like even, say, Sao Paulo, which is a well-developed, uh, thriving metropolis, has come close to running out of water. And, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you manage that? How do you implement solutions for that in a way that you both you can pay for and get the resources for and get the people for? and make it last. And all of those came up. And I think that ultimately COP27 in many ways, it, both in terms of the good things that came out and the walls that people hit is that these are not easy solutions and, and they're not global. They're, you know, ultimately they're lo somewhat local with a, you know, a global impact. Yeah. 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 Global impact, local, local solution. Right. And, and I think the other thing that came out was, you know, it, the, the 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 momentum around the net zero pledges is fantastic, but as you say, it's not just emissions, right? It is it's water, it's access to livelihood, it's you know how you live. It it is so many things um, that are interconnected, and I think when you when you get into the weeds and you realize that, that's when everyone goes, oh yeah, actually there's a lot that 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 we need to look at simultaneously. So so there's not just like one number. It's not like, oh, let's just track our emissions and then it will solve everything because you have to build a livable city that people want to be in, right? In order to maximize the resources. It, it's a really fascinating um, discussion, but not very good for sound bites, not very good for, you know, one line pledges that you put on your, on your website, but really much more about the, you know, behind the scenes. You, you even saw it at COP, you know, there's an extra day and a half essentially of negotiations at the end, just as people, that was the really unglamorous, that's the cop that doesn't get onto the, onto the pictures in the paper. That Those are people like, you know, lawyers, diplomats sitting in rooms, you know, sitting over a piece of paper writing, you know, are we going to say and, are we going to say or here? And then having a, you know, eight hour negotiation over that. Um, but I think it, it th th that's real delivery on, on what, what has to happen. I guess coming to that point, you know, you see, you, you, you look across the globe, obviously, um, and you're looking at lots of trends around, um, around trade, around what's happening in the world. How do you, how do you make sustainable development? Um, what do you think would be a real game changer. People talk about lots of different things, you know, private business says, oh, well, we, you know, we need guideposts from, from government. We need commitments from government. Government says we need private, you know, private actors in the room. We need private, 
private business moving on this. What do you think um, would be a real game changer? Well, the biggest game changer, unfortunately, in every way, shape and form always revolves around money. I wish it didn't. I wish it was, you know, all about the, you know, seeing this impetus and in this looming, looming uh, crises, let alone the ones that are there now. But right now, I think what I'd say the biggest game changer is how we think about pricing global warming, how we assess it and the impact they're in. Because everything we tend to do tend to do how we view things is all about pricing the now we all look at it we talk about pricing out a project how much is it going to cost to start it how much is it going to cost to execute it we don't ever measure we don't price at least in, except in very limited sectors of the economy how you know how is a collapse a problem in a a location, not just the developed world. I mean, as much as people might talk about New York City needing a seawall and, you know, some point needing to pay for that. But how about, you know, how about what happens if, uh, you know, crops fail in a large chunk of the world? If you don't have the resources or a plan in place for execution or dealing with this eventuality, what is it going to do to food prices? What is it going to do to resource prices? What is it going to do to the fundamental cost of manufacturing and maintaining people's standards of living? And that forward pricing, which is something that you hear words about it, but you don't actually get many politicians, very many business leaders who really want to commit to that kind of assessment and that understanding. One of the few places I've actually run into where people have regularly talked about that is the U.S. military, where the military views it from a strategic consideration issue. Where are they likely to have conflicts? What are their costs going to be for deployment? Where are bases going to be threatened or impacted? They view it as a real part of their threat assessment going forward years or decades, and it's part of their process. And then they get pushback from politicians claiming that they're woke or environmentalists like no they're actively trying to assess real threats mm -hmm. and what we're seeing right now in the florida south florida insurance market where mm -hmm. you, you had the one uh uh condo collapse and then everybody's looking at it and saying can i insure my condo when it comes up for the insurance comes up for renewal can i get catastrophic insurance that assessment is where we're starting to see it. We're starting to see it in insurance. We're starting to see it in different ways. But ultimately, I think what really needs to change everybody's viewpoint is to start pricing out, not going after the oil companies and, and charging them for their global damage that they've done to the world or anything like that, but instead looking forward and saying, how do we realistically price things out more than six months in advance? How do we look at this and say, this is going to save us money if we make this investment now, and it's going to save us billions or trillions of dollars, which are mind-boggling sums. You know, When you hear people talk about potential impact globally in the quadrillions of dollars, that's beyond anybody's ability to grasp. But we need to look at this and price things out not just from a government side, but from a private side. And we need to look at it and recognize that this is fundamentally something that 
is a change in our mentality and that we and not just look at it and saying you know species are going away not just that you know our ability to have snow in the winter goes away but to genuinely say these are the costs we're facing and we are going to be facing them sooner than we think yeah no it, it really interesting points I, I i would agree with that i you know I, it's hard to say in a sentence but insurance is really interesting um when it when <laughs> in this regards right because the insurance companies are really at the front end of that right their whole business model is about how often do these catastrophic events happen and then you know how am i making my investments to pay to pay them off and so they sit both in the finance world and in the risk world in a way that not a lot of other companies are 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 as far along as they are so that's a really interesting one always and you know you know excellent point you make about trying to get people to conceptualize things that are just not on their agenda at all and we're seeing that you know boards starting to put things on their agenda i think that i think the tcft there's it's mandatory now in four countries uh, over different types of companies but i think that process is really enlightening for companies who have gone through it right because you have to sit down with these scenario analyses and say okay where am i most exposed to climate risk then what does it look like on you know a three degree world what does that actually look like in the short the medium and the long term maybe the long term is not as long as some people might like but but I think really kind of gets people started on that path about thinking about that in a, in a very different way. Um, so all, all great points there. Um, one takeaway, one takeaway for our listeners. And, you know, we have folks listening in, anything they can take back into their offices tomorrow and say, okay, well, let's, you know, let's talk about this at the business level. Well, the first thing is, is to be not, too trite, but be aware of what you don't know. Mm. A, a lot of what we get is these big picture, newsworthy, quotable items. But the reality in terms of execution, the reality in terms of looking at where heat impacts are going to be and how is that going to affect your business and your vulnerabilities? Where is where is flooding going to be? Not just the, the sea level rising, but just where are you likely to be hit by storm surges? Where are you likely to hit because the infrastructure isn't able to cope? And be aware of that and be aware of that and recognize that this is going to be an impact on you sooner rather than later. And that being able to plan out and adapt. This is not always about, you know, just simply, you know, pick up your stakes and move right now. This is not about just give up on your project. This is about being ready and being adaptable and understanding the different kinds of factors that are going to affect you and your business. And that a certain amount of it means looking out for different reports, looking out for different assessments, absolutely talking to insurance companies, but also looking for data sources or looking for a provider or somebody who can you know, help you out with that and recognize that this is a business that is going to wind up becoming incredibly important now in the future, not just going through these assessment processes, but genuinely looking and finding and recognizing these sources, finding the ways to actually be able to understand what your company needs and that it's not just a matter of right now, but it's a matter of planning. And we live in a world where stock markets and, and various other things, you know, are all about quarterly reports. 
And we're going to have to go and look at guidance and say it's time to go back to looking, you know, three, five years down the road. Even that will make a difference. Yeah, no, definitely. Super. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. I think uh, fantastic points um, to share with our listeners. And I really appreciate your time and coming on to uh, onto the podcast series. Thanks. My pleasure. And uh, I look forward to hearing it. I look forward to the others in the series. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again to Kevin for your time, your thoughts, and your insight. To read the report compiled by McKinsey & Company, which shares the best ideas from the discussions that emerged from the GII Summit, please visit mckinsey.com. Make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, you can also listen to our other episodes and leave a rating or review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now. Bye.